Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Wagg. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Dr. Jonathan Weigel, who's Assistant Professor of International Development at the London School of Economics. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, today, we'll be focusing our discussion on your work related to state capacity and taxation, which, of course, our more technocratic listeners have been begging for for a long time, the huge tax fans. Um, so we'll, we'll certainly list a uh, link to your projects and papers regarding these topics and everything we mentioned in the show notes as well. So let's start off with state capacity, because I know this can get a bit tricky. Can you just give us a brief overview of how you conceptualize state capacity in your work? Yeah, sure. I think of it generally as just the ability of the state to implement the kinds of policies and projects that the government uh, chooses to enact. And you can sort of unpack that a little bit following Bessley in person into extractive capacity and productive capacity, where extractive capacity is the ability of the state to achieve a certain revenue target through tax collection. Um, And you could even be more specific as Bessley and Person do and conceptualize that as a kind of ceiling on the types of tax rates that are possible, like on the maximum possible tax rate. or even a a ceiling on the maximum number of tax enforcement visits that are possible if you wanted to get very specific. And then productive capacity is on the other hand, sort of the more productive side of the state. So enforcing contracts, regulation, correcting externalities, providing public goods, um, things like that. so I think that's generally how I, I think of the, the term state capacity, but it is certainly uh, often debated. <laughs> that's great. And how does this, this relate to taxes? Why are taxes important? I know that for listeners who have read a lot of the political economy and political development literature, taxes play a central role there. But perhaps for listeners who haven't read those in a while or haven't gone back over their exam notes, maybe you can give us a brief overview of just how taxes play into conceptions of state development and state capacity. Sure, yeah, that's, there's obviously a big literature on this. I think my, the way I tend to think about it is, you know, taxes are crucial for govern for sort of the quality of government and political development in at least two straightforward ways. So one is taxes, you know, are the resources with which governments get things done. They enable them to enforce contracts and to provide public goods and to correct externalities, et cetera. That's obviously very important for, you know, good governance, but they can also have sort of more of an indirect effect on the quality of governance through the kind of accountability mechanisms that I focus on in uh, in, in, in some papers. Um, and the idea here is that this could actually catalyze citizens to try to hold the, the, the government to account um, once, once, the, once the state starts to collect uh, serious amounts of tax. Um, so there's sort of those two, there's a kind of direct impact uh, by providing resources. Um, and then there's this indirect uh, impact on the um, on the actual kind of accountability of the government and the representativeness of the government. Um, and of course, there's a long sort of line of scholarship sort of thinking mostly more historically about both of those types of effects. And so we often think about the sort of Tilly, you know, Bellicist model of state formation, uh, revenue imperatives from war, stimulating the building of modern Weberian bureaucratic states. And, um, and all of that is really about sort of taxation being constitutive of kind of state capacity building in a sense. It, you know, to, to actually extract a lot of revenue from the excise tax in the 18th century, the, you know, the British state had to really kind of increase the amount of human capital it, it had, it, it had to, um, sort of modernize the, the system, the personnel systems, it had to increase the ability to centralize and process information. And a lot of these types of capacity improvements then were thought to sort of spill over on the rest of the state. So what began in the tax department because of the need for revenue to pay for increasingly costly war spread to the rest of the state. And so you got kind of 
the emergence of state capacity and that's sort of where the state building literature I think would 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 um, would place the role of tax and then kind of separately you know how did you actually do that well you had to convince uh, you know society to supply more revenue for the state and so once once war was sufficiently expensive you know you needed to sort of make concessions as a, as a, as a leader when, uh, when, when the middle classes and the elite groups you were asking to, to pay taxes were uh, demanding, you know, a voice in politics and more representative, uh, you know, assemblies and uh, more transparent spending, more spending on public goods. And so that's then where the kind of uh, participation, dividend and the kind of accountability effects of taxation came in. I think that's a great jumping off point to some of your work. And I, I do think in some of these historical takes on taxation, we do kind of imagine more of a bargaining process where one side comes to the table, the government says we need funds, what for, and there's this back and forth. And I know it's probably not quite as tidy in the field um, as it is in, in some of those conceptualizations. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk through how taxation works in low capacity states. Are we overlooking uh, a large um, amount of inefficiencies, the kind of transaction costs in the day-to-day -day of approaching kind of rural and urban communities. And so have, from what you've seen in the field, how does this work in the day-to-day? -day? How are taxes collected and what um, are low capacity states missing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think you generally observe sort of more reliance on simplified tax instruments, um, less reliance on third-party reported taxes, so taxes like uh, payroll taxes and social security taxes, um, where in essence you have, you know, a, the employer sending to the tax authority a, uh, a record that then the tax authority can check on how much of that, of the sort of income uh, a worker has reported. And so, you know, there's quite a bit of work in the sort of more of the public finance um, in development literature showing that there's basically in sort of high capacity states near perfect compliance on taxes that have third party reporting coverage. And so one of the one of the major differences, I think, is the fact that in developing countries, you tend to have much larger informal sectors and therefore fewer uh, formal firms that are providing third party information. Similarly, you have less financial uh, development. So banks, um, credit card companies, these are other sources of third-party information that the tax authorities can use. And so in the absence of um, this third-party information, the uh, tax authority is, is sort of more constrained in its ability to sort of achieve high levels of, of tax enforcement. Um, so what does it need to do instead if it can't rely on, you know, employers reports or even withholding is a, is a very efficient way to collect tax in, in many sort of developed countries? Well, they have to um, often have more sort of in-person uh, collection or in-person delivery of uh, tax notices, tax bills, for instance, that's very common. The reliance on specific types of taxes is also a bit different. So you have you know, less reliance on something like the income tax. You have more reliance, uh, comparatively speaking, on consumption taxes, on um, other indirect taxes, on trade taxes, certainly. There's more reliance on those taxes. Generally, you know, I think the way to think about it is that the difficulty of evasion or sort of the ease of collecting taxes is paramount. And so what uh, developing countries with low capacity often end up doing is collecting more revenue from taxes that are easier to collect. And that often ends up being things like, you know, trade taxes. It's easy to sort of collect tax from the port because it all has to come in through one place. So you sort of can, can, uh, can hold people up until they pay or like tolls are a very sort of classic way of collecting tax for that same reason. Um, I think property taxes are underexploited for other reasons we can talk about, but they similarly, you know, in theory, should be relatively easy to collect because they, um, you know, it's levied on a an immobile uh, asset and sort of a visible asset, so it should be 
uh, relatively easy to collect. So, I mean, is it, you sort of asked, is it efficient? I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's terribly efficient. Um, I do think that governments are optimizing given the, you know, conditions they're, they're under. It does lead to quite a different uh, sort of, you know, world of taxation relative to uh, what, what maybe uh, people in developing countries are used to. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It reminds me a lot of, of Margaret Levy's, of course, uh, quasi-voluntary compliance and sort of the non-linear impact of capacity on taxation, where it actually is cheaper and you can gain more efficient revenues when you're in a, a higher capacity state than low capacity states. I think it's all fascinating. So perhaps you can talk us through uh, your paper working directly on a project, and this is the in the province of, of Kasai. And yeah. yeah, so you maybe you can give us an overview as to why taxation became a salient issue in this area um, and what exactly kind of the study, the control and treatment groups were. Sure. One, uh, one quick point on your yeah. previous question. I, I probably should have mentioned uh, that the rate of tax take in uh, developing countries is considerably lower even in relative terms than in developed countries. So low-income countries collect uh, around 10% of their GDPs in tax while um, high-income countries are often collecting sort of 30 to 40% of their GDPs in tax. So all of those differences really do add up, even in relative terms, right? In absolute terms, it's even more stark. It's something like, I think the, I think the DRC uh, per year collects on the order of $70 per person per year, and then the United States collects on the order of $22,000 per person per year, you know? So that's a very large gap. Um, but so turning to your question, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, I think, because it's not obvious that, I mean, we, we tend to think that governments are um, revenue maximizing or welfare maximizing, perhaps, uh, if, it, if it's sort of a democratically elected government or a benevolent government of some kind. Uh, the, the DRC is not uh, a classic democracy. It's probably competitive authoritarian, something, something like that. Um, so it's not obvious that they always have incentives in sort of low capacity environments to actually increase tax collection. Uh, and so this, this draws on some of Bessley and Person's work. They kind of unpack when and when don't uh, states have incentives to invest in their extractive capacity. In other words, collecting more tax. Um, in any case, what, what the, the immediate uh, impetus for the tax campaign that I studied in 2016 was a kind of national level political change called the decoupage in 2015. And the uh, incumbent president, Joseph Kabila, who was very wildly unpopular, especially in the region uh, I was working in, in Kasai, he had uh, managed, uh, he was trying to uh, avoid his a national election coming up. And so he managed to uh, do uh, a number of strategies to sort of cause what was known as glissement and, and uh, cause administrative aches and pains that would slow down the arrival of this election. One of these was uh, this decoupage, which splintered province from uh, provinces from, uh, gosh, I think it's 15 to 31 or something on the order, something like that. I, I can't remember the exact numbers right now. What it meant for Kasai and, and the government in Kananga is that the diamond rich region around Chikapa went into the Kasai province rather than the Kasai Central province, which they were then the capital of. And so what this meant was, you know, this diamond rich area was something like 40% of the provincial revenues. And so the government in Kananga suddenly had this big revenue gap that it needed to fill. And so it turned to the property tax. And uh, the property tax, I think, is that that decision was very consistent with kind of international best practices for developing countries, especially in obviously in local governments. Why is that? Well, the property tax is thought to be a, an efficient tax. It's levied on an immobile, immobile asset. It's um, also, you know, returning to our previous conversation, it should be a relatively uh, easy tax to collect because, again, it's sort of this visible, you know, properties are visible, houses are visible. 
And perhaps most important, Africa is the most rapidly urbanizing continent on earth. And this is creating huge increases in urban property values, which are largely going untaxed just at the same time as you have large increases in the demand for urban uh, infrastructure and amenities, which sh really should be paid from things like the property tax. So it's a very important tax, yet it's highly underexploited, especially in developing countries. Uh, to give you some sense of that, I think uh, low-income countries bring in about 0.25% of their GDP in property tax, and the figure in, in uh, developed countries or in, in high-income countries is 10 times that. So it's highly underexploited, actually the most underexploited in relative terms like that of any tax, even thinking about income tax or other things. Um, and again, we can kind of get to the political economy behind that because I really think it is a political economy story. Um, but nonetheless, I think there's great potential for the property tax. And that's certainly the, I think, consensus among folks who work on uh, tax issues in, in, in African countries, for instance. Um, and so what did the government do? Well, it started to initiate a, uh, a system of door-to-door -door tax collection. And this was a, a large campaign that was conducted throughout the city of, of Kanango, which has about a million, somewhere between a million and two million people. And in this tax campaign, uh, for effectively the first time, the government really systematically collected property taxes from residential property owners. And so they went uh, door to door, um, first registering properties because there wasn't any kind of existing tax role or property valuation role. So they had to first find out who was in the city and could be potentially taxed. Um, and so these tax collectors first went and sort of mapped out neighborhoods and registered them as potential taxpayers. They assigned them, you know, official tax codes and uh, gave them sort of tax ID letters, uh, sorry, uh, tax letters showing the tax code. And then they actually solicited the tax uh, right then and there on the, on the spot. And they collected the money in person uh, among those who, who were able to pay. And then they issued receipts uh, to payers using these handheld printers. Um, and so they did this throughout the city. Uh, and uh, I, I sort of, this is where my evaluation comes in. I sort of worked with the government then to randomize the rollout of this campaign. And so they initially uh, did this in uh, a little over half of the city, um, randomly selected in those neighborhoods. And in the other neighborhoods, the um, basically they kept the old system. And in the old system, so that's gonna be the control group and kind of the language of uh, field experiments. In the control group, they all the citizens were expected to go and pay themselves at the tax uh, ministry. Uh, but this, as in the past, this really wasn't enforced very much. Um, and um, yeah, and so that's that's kind of the the way that the the, the treatments looked in this experiment, and the way that the uh, the government was responding to this you know negative revenue shock and trying to raise its uh, property tax compliance. So I think the the audience listening to this might have a hypothesis about which of those worked uh, more effectively. But before we get into the participation dividend, perhaps you can just detail what the actual effect was just on tax compliance itself. Yeah, so there was a perhaps not surprisingly kind of a, a large impact on compliance. So you can see that the you know, households in these treatment neighborhoods that were assigned to the tax campaign, there was an 80 percentage point, little, little around 80 percentage point increase in uh, the number of visits from tax collectors, so from agents of the state. And then that manifested in about an 11 point uh, increase in property tax compliance. So the rate in control neighborhoods was basically zero, very close to zero. And the rate in treatment neighborhoods was about 11% of property um, owners. And so this, um, this, did, this did sort of mean a substantial amount of revenue for the government. So provincial tax revenues after the campaign um, was about 5% property taxes. Um, and, um, and then if you include a broader set of property taxes, that's actually sort of 25% of total provincial revenue. And these, this sort of model of the door-to-door -door tax collection was continued by the government in, in subsequent years. That's great. 
And so let's let's shift over to kind of the more interesting aspect and what your paper actually focuses on, which is the idea of a participation dividend. Maybe you can just tell us what that is. If, if uh, for listeners who of course haven't read the paper, shame on them. Uh, they'll have to get out and, and read that right away. Uh, but they, yeah, you can give us an overview of what that is and how it relates to kind of this treatment control. Yeah, the by participation dividend, I mean uh, the kind of citizen pressure that may be stimulated or catalyzed when the state starts to uh, increase tax extraction, basically. So returning to our conversation about, you know, historically, why did uh, the revenue imperative and the, you know, the sort of increasing costs of war, why did that lead eventually to more inclusive governance in some of these very classic accounts like North and Weingast and in Charles Tilley's writings? Well, it's because when the state comes knocking and says, hey, we need tax revenue, citizens don't necessarily immediately supply that tax revenue, but they're, they're kind of rational actors and they, they're thinking of this as a potential bargaining game. And they, they think, okay, well, you know, this is now a bargaining chip in some sense. Um, what can I demand of the government? And so they tended to sort of historically demand uh, more of an institutionalized form of constraints on the executive, you know, so uh, assemblies and other forms of inclusive institutions, uh, more public goods spending, more transparency, uh, more avenues for citizen engagement, et cetera, et cetera. So by participation dividend, I mean quite literally, you know, do we observe empirically speaking um, that increased tax collection causes citizens to try to exert more costly effort uh, in engaging with the formal uh, state? Because I think, you know, although this logic is very compelling, it's, it, it is of course difficult to have sort of watertight um, empirical sort of well, you know, well-identified uh, empirical evidence on this question because, you know, historically speaking, many huge forces were changing at once. And I don't think even the people advancing these theories would say, okay, well, you know, tax, the tax uh, uh, aspect was the most important, the single uh, sort of force that was sort of moving some of these early modern cases that people study toward democracy and toward sort of more more you know step by step more inclusive institutions um, there were broad changes in the economy occurring at the same time economic modernization uh, you had many other you know influences on regime changes that were going on so so I think this is why it's uh, an important question to to think about in the context of a uh, a state that's undergoing um, a process or a really substantial kind of shock to the amount of revenue extraction that's going on, does this catalyze uh, you know, participation in some of these ways that would be hypothesized by this, uh, by sort of these, these historical accounts, for instance. Um, so that was maybe a bit long-winded. Uh, I think uh, um, to measure, uh, political participation, to try to measure a, a participation dividend in this context, um, I, I, was, I was a little bit stuck initially because I was, you know, this is not a democracy. And so typically in much of the political economy literature, people would look at, you know, sort of voter outcomes as, as you know, this is, this is what we should look at. But, but then actually in thinking about it more deeply, I realized maybe that's not the right outcome because in fact, the whole idea about a sort of participation dividend or an accountability governance dividend is that, you know, this happens kind of in non-democratic, uh, you know, regimes, right? So it's, it's actually a, a more direct form of, of, of citizen pressure and engagement that is of interest. Um, and so uh, I, I did some sort of focus group discussions and, and tried to found, find out, you know, how in this uh, fairly non-democratic regime do people actually engage with the government? How do they exert voice? And the main two ways were uh, by hosting local meetings, um, often sort of in communities or civil society uh, organizations that do this or kind of in the neighborhoods, people, these, these meetings are held. Uh, to, to sort of bring a set of complaints, uh, you know, to, to light. And the second way is authoring quite formal letters of complaint. And those are often um, brought to the government by a representative in the community. 
So we sort of partnered with um, the, the government uh, to uh, measure both of these types of uh, participation. First, uh, a series of town hall meetings that were hosted by the provincial government, by the finance ministry. Um, and I studied uh, whether citizens in the treatment neighborhoods, so the ones that received the tax campaign, were more likely to attend these town hall meetings. And uh, the second sort of main outcome for participation is the submission of uh, government evaluations, which are similar to these uh, sort of formal letters of complaint. And uh, these government evaluations were in a, in a sort of Dropbox downtown and were shared with the governor. And, um, you know, so the important part here is that both of these measures of participation are quite costly for citizens to, uh, to, to, to do. And so they provide potentially, you know, an attractive uh, measure of their willingness to, to exert effort to engage with the provincial government. And, and what did you find? Did you find a difference between the groups? Yes, so there is a, uh, a f- about a five percentage point increase in the probability that citizens uh, either attended a town hall meeting or submitted one of these evaluations. And that's, you can look at the two individual measures and you see increases. You can look at doing both sort of an intensive margin. There's an increase of, I think, about 2.8 percentage points. Um, and so that's that's off of a base rate of, I believe, around 15, uh, 15%, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. So a fairly sizable increase then if it starts at 15 to 5%. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's around around 30 30 uh, percent uh, in term in percent terms. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, great. Okay, so you have spoken a bit about the bargaining side as a mechanism. You also mentioned kind of an updating mechanism that you see as playing a role. Perhaps you can give us a brief overview as to what you see kind of impacting this increase and what it, what is it driving? What is the driving force for this? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, one of the one of the most sort of knee-jerk reactions that I think many people have is that, oh, this must be the, the taxpayers who are, uh, who are showing up at these meetings and dropping off these, um, you know, dropping off these government evaluations. And the implied logic is something like a, an ownership of tax revenues or potentially kind of a loss aversion mechanism. Um, and maybe surprisingly, we don't, uh, we don't observe evidence of that. So the people who paid taxes are no more or less likely than the people who didn't pay taxes in the treatment neighborhoods to participate in these ways. Um, so it doesn't appear that this is really a story about, um, about you know, paying taxes and then wanting to participate. What's really correlated with uh, participation is receiving these visits from the, uh, from the tax collectors. Um, and that's much more consistent with either uh, what, I, what I call an updating mechanism or uh, the bargaining mechanism. And so the bargaining mechanism is, um, I think, is maybe you know, quite intuitive. The, the tax collector comes to your doorstep, asks you to pay taxes. In fact, it's totally rational not to pay taxes and then to, and then to show up at the meeting and, and demand concessions, right? Because you have the bargaining power. Uh, you've been given this bargaining chip. And in fact, paying you lose your bargaining power. So that so the sort of um, ownership style mechanism is, is a bit inconsistent with a sort of bargaining logic, at least in my reading. Um, and so that I think that basic pattern is quite, uh, is quite consistent with a bargaining story. We also try to collect more evidence that's almost qualitative in nature. So we do sort of text analysis on the types of questions that were being asked by citizens at these town hall meetings and the types of responses that they were um, including on their evaluation forms, questions they were asking on the evaluations forms. And that uh, text analysis also suggests that, uh, you know, really on people's minds is this exchange of uh, revenue for more accountability, more transparency, more public goods. Um, So I think that sort of almost qualitative evidence is very consistent with with bargaining. on the updating story, this is a this is a bit of a different hypothesis. I, there, there's also some evidence of it, so it's worth discussing. The idea is that in a very low capacity setting, when you observe agents of the formal state showing up at your doorstep, that causes you to update your beliefs about 
uh, how much capacity you think the government has or how much capacity you think the state has, let's say. And that impacts your participation decisions because you're thinking about how the government and the state might impact your future well-being. Well, if the government has zero capacity, then it's probably not going to be able to really tax you in the future. It's probably also not going to be able to provide public goods that will meaningfully impact your life in the future. So you're kind of not worth, uh, it's, it's not worth it to you to participate, right? But if you observe a government that's passed, uh, you know, some threshold, then you might think, okay, this government really is capable of taxing me in the future. Uh, I'd like to have a voice in trying to decide tax policy, trying to uh, you know, be, be part of a bargaining process over tax rates, tax instruments, et cetera. Moreover, uh, if the government has more revenue, it may be able to uh, provide more public goods. And that also creates potentially an incentive to uh, show up and try to try to bargain with the government to, uh, you know, to get the best possible uh, sort of fiscal deal you can to get the best public goods uh, return on your you know, tax investment, so to speak. So both of those can provide a kind of mechanism through which uh, just observing agents of the state could impact your views about the capacity of the government. And again, I think this is only relevant in a very sort of low capacity setting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that you know, this margin is gonna matter in many sort of higher capacity settings. Um, so that is quite consistent with some of the evidence we see. This fact that you know, again, it's it's where uh, it's it's where people are being visited by tax collectors rather than tax payments per se. That's really kind of correlated with participation in the treatment group. Uh, moreover, we we uh, I, I look at uh, sort of treatment effects on beliefs about the government, and you do see people updating their beliefs about. Um, how much revenue the, the government has, how much information it knows about taxpayers, how much, um, how, how much integrity it has in both its collectors and its spending, all of which should imply that the, uh, you know, the, the, the future state can provide more public goods. And so that could provide a kind of incentive to show up and try to have a voice in politics. Um, we also do observe that um, the increase in participation that's caused by this tax campaign is more pronounced in neighborhoods where you had less past exposure to the formal state. And so in those neighborhoods, the kind of signal of state capacity that is sent by this tax campaign, receiving that visit from the tax collector, that would have been a stronger signal. And so I think that's also consistent um, with some of the results we see. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I know you you mentioned this might not carry over at least the updating portion to higher capacity states, but I would argue that at least in some sense, the recent direct stimulus in here in the United States has perhaps had a similar effect on people's ability to um, acknowledge the capacities that the government has here in the U.S. in kind of a more digital era. I've spoken to a few people who have said, you know, wait, the government could just be sending us money this whole time. Why have we never taken advantage of this? So I think there are some parallels there that are fairly interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh -huh. So, so you know, in your paper that these results uh, could suggest that governments in low compliance areas may not want to raise revenue through taxes because this could lead to participation that's against the interests of incumbents. So this is getting at that political economy aspect that you spoke of before and kind of the visual stimuli. So maybe you can speak to that briefly before we switch over to your other paper. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just sort of if you if you take this governance dividend seriously and this participation dividend seriously, and you have forward-looking governments who actually aren't that excited to have citizens demanding more accountability, more public goods, more avenues for participation, you know, more constraints on the power of the incumbent, then they may be very averse to collecting uh, all sorts of direct taxes. Direct taxes are much more visible to the, um, you know, to the taxpayer. They may have a more pronounced participation uh, dividend. And the property tax, especially with this kind of collection where you're kind of sending people out you know, door to door, it's very in your face, it's very direct. So this may have a kind of uh, you know, especially large uh, participation dividend, especially if you're thinking like a government, you know, it's not just the taxpayers who are clamoring for better policy, it's everyone who gets the visits. So in fact, sort of, you know, it's almost a disproportionately large response and sort of you know, relative to the increase in revenues. Um, so 
you know, this, I think this provides a kind of political economy explanation for why, uh, just going back to our previous conversation about the different tax structure in low-income countries, um, this, this could provide an explanation for why you observe more reliance on these indirect taxes. Well, you know, it's be, it may be because, um, you know, non-democratic uh, regimes you know, don't want to increase these accountability pressures. And so they actually rely more on indirect taxes that are more hidden and sort of show up in the form of higher prices to, you know, they're paid by consumers. Um, and there's, uh, there's some great recent work uh, on this by Lucy Martin, uh, Brandon De La Cuesta, Helen Milner, uh, I think Daniel Nielsen also. Yeah, and so just the, the flip side of that, um, I know there's a literature that advisor of mine, Victor Minaldo, works on. He kind of points out that governments who are more autocratic or are more willing to look away from citizens are also uh, have invest more heavily in looking for things like resources and minerals where they don't have to interact face-to-face with the citizenry for this exact reason. So I'm wondering if you think that perhaps this form of taxation leads or could lead in certain circumstances to kind of more socially optimal spending of that funding than something like the resource minerals or the, the diamond mines um, in this particular case. Yes, I think I think there's reason to believe that. I think there's evidence of this too. Um, again, that, that you know Laura Paler has done great work on on this question. Lucy Martin, uh, and that's that same team I just kind of mentioned. They have some papers on this, and I think there is evidence that you know when you compare kind of tax revenue versus uh, revenue from uh, foreign aid or kind of natural resources or other windfalls like government transfers, um, then there are kind of more muted accountability pressures. Uh, uh, so, so, so I think there is some evidence to, to suggest that. I would point out that, you know, if this updating mechanism is, is operating, then in some sense, that may be a policy variant to kind of in, information provision in the sense that if people are aware of the, the kinds of revenues that are coming out of the ground or coming in from foreign aid, perhaps that would give them more, an more of an incentive to participate and try to hold the government to account. But there may just be also a kind of information problem that, that blocks their, um, their engagement in politics. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's shift over to your, to your more recent project, uh, which is also about tax, but interesting looking at it from a slightly different perspective. So you look at how local elites can serve a role in tax collection, making it perhaps more efficient or, or a bit more effective. So can you give us an overview of this project and how it relates to historical efforts to utilize local elites to facilitate uh, taxation in low capacity states? Yeah, so, I mean, it really is a very natural kind of next step from the project I was just describing. The provincial government was looking over the results of the campaign from 2016 and basically thinking, well, how can we do better? And in a number of countries, uh, like Senegal is, is one example that was brought up, I believe, um, you observe these uh, city chiefs who are sort of local notables um, that help to resolve property disputes and help to maintain local infrastructure through a kind of informal labor tax. Um, these actors, these, these, these sort of, um, you know, kind of like neo-customary actors who are recognized by the state, but have a kind of uh, neo-customary uh, authority to them as well. They often play a role in property tax collection in, in, in sort of Francophone African countries. So the government was looking to these examples and thinking, well, gosh, you know, couldn't we involve these chiefs in property tax collection to, to potentially further uh, extend the tax net and, and raise further revenue? And I think this is an interesting thing to study. I mean, in, in both because, you know, I think it's a big challenge how sort of low capacity or fragile states establish state capacity and, and tax capacity in the first place, but also because this is really a kind of a classic question if you're thinking about, you know, you mentioned Margaret Levy, um, you know, she talks extensively about how uh, the difference between whether it's optimal for the state in a purely kind of revenue uh, perspective to 
you know, to use its own agents to collect taxes in a kind of more centralized fashion, or whether it's better to use more of a decentralized approach and actually delegate tax collection responsibilities to local elites. Um, so it's kind of an interesting question, both uh, when keeping these historical processes of uh, state capacity building in mind, and just with reference to the types of challenges that are registered in many low capacity and fragile states today. So we, um, we again, you know, partnered closely with the provincial government to conduct a randomized evaluation of the 2018 uh, property tax campaign, where neighborhoods were assigned to either what I sometimes call central uh, tax collection, where the agents of the provincial tax ministry collected tax, and those are the exact same agents we were just talking about. So these are agents of the, of the provincial government versus age, um, neighborhoods that were randomly assigned to local tax collection, call it local for shorthand, and that's where the city chiefs were instead delegated those authorities. And the campaign worked almost identically with the one exception that the agent of the, uh, excuse me, the identity of the collector was different across these two places. So they again went and first sort of registered properties and then they collected the, uh, the property tax using a very similar kind of approach. And were there differences in the efficiency or the amount collected between the local and the central officials? Yes, so we do find that the chiefs were in, indeed more, more effective as collectors. Um, they collected uh, about uh, 3.2 percentage points uh, more revenue. Um, and that ends up being uh, a 43% increase in, um, in tax revenues relative to the state collectors. Um, so pretty, pretty large increase relative to, for, for instance, we benchmark the magnitude here by comparing to a very standard intervention that's been used in many countries around the world, which is in the tax letters that are given out to, to uh, potential taxpayers, you randomize an enforcement messages that just, that just sort of raises the salience of the possible kind of penalties for evading the tax, et cetera. And so that enforcement message does indeed increase compliance, which is consistent with evidence from elsewhere, but it does so about one fifth as much as delegating collection to these, uh, these local chiefs. And what do you think is the mechanism at play here? Why are they so much more effective than, than the central providers? So we, we provide quite a bit of evidence in the paper that it has a lot to do with uh, the local information that is possessed by these city chiefs. Um, the strongest evidence comes from a third treatment arm where still a third set of neighborhoods was randomized to a, a sort of hybrid treatment where a state collector goes and constructs the property register. And then they meet for um, about you know, two to four hours with the resident city chief. And the city chief advises the, uh, the collectors, the state collectors about the ability and the willingness to pay of every single uh, property owner in that neighborhood. And then they part ways and the state collector goes back to the neighborhood and you know, spends the rest of the month sort of collecting taxes. And so what this um, treatment, uh, it sort of endeavors to codify the local information of these city chiefs and then transmit that information to the state collector as a test of whether that uh, information enables more efficient targeting of tax collectors. Um, and so we do observe that the, the tax compliance increases by a little over two percentage points in the um, yeah, comparing the informed state collectors to the regular state collectors. Um, so that provides pretty direct evidence that this information really matters. And you might wonder, well, okay, what, what is it about the information? Um, and so what we can show is that, you know, they're not actually visiting more people. They're visiting about the same number of people. They're just more efficient in targeting the visits they do to the households that have the highest underlying ability or willingness to pay. So it's this kind of, you know, you can imagine that both types of collector observe some signal about uh, the ability or willingness to pay of, of these households, but the chiefs, they have access to a more uh, accurate signal. So then conditional on doing, you know, X number of visits, let's say you visit, they both visit 50% of the, of the households for a second time after the property registration, then 
conditional on that number of visits, the city chiefs will rank order households according to a more meaningful ranking and achieve a higher uh, actual property tax compliance compared to the state collectors who are who are comparatively less well targeted in their approach of, of visiting these uh, these households. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. In a way, it, it kind of sounds like it enables more progressive taxation as well. It's it's a price discrimination enabled by local knowledge, which is pretty interesting and perhaps you know better, more optimal for for the local communities as well. Well, it's sort of interesting because. In, you know, I, I completely agree. There's sort of this potential for progressivity here. Um, we, we look at that as an outcome. And you, you actually observe, if you, if you estimate progressivity in terms of the quality of the houses, it turns out that these chiefs are actually slightly more regressive huh. than the state collector. But that's not the case if you're looking at income or uh, cash on hand, liquidity. And we also, you know, estimate impacts on sort of welfare and well-being and we don't see any kind of differences there so it's a little bit of a puzzling finding but what ultimately we are able to um, I think show in the paper is that the the visit strategies of the state collectors are quite different from the visit strategies uh, for the chiefs and again I'm talking about kind of who they choose to go back to after the property registration because they have quite a bit of discretion over that step of the of the tax campaign. And you can see in the data that the, the state collectors are targeting their tax visits toward, uh, you know, based on these kind of external uh, household characteristics, the quality of the walls, the quality of the roof, et cetera. But the chiefs have access to this richer set of signals. They also have access to less visible margins, such as employment status, income, uh, and actually sort of tax morale and other things that are more like willingness to pay. And so it's not that they're, they're targeting the less, the lower quality houses. That's not that's not a, the case. They actually do positively sort or positively select uh, in their visits to, on uh, nicer quality houses. It's just that's a less pronounced correlation relative to uh, the central collectors because they're also targeting based on uh, the sort of underlying ability and willingness to pay. And so that generates that targeting difference in, in whom they're sort of visiting after registration generates this this somewhat puzzling difference in, uh, in incidence. And so it's, it looks a little bit regressive if you look at house quality, but not if you look at these other margins like income or sort of cash on hand, you know, which if we're really thinking about progressivity may be more important in, the, in, the, you know, in, a, in a context where you have almost no income taxation. But that's a little bit of a more speculative suggestion uh, because ultimately the underlying tax base of the property tax is thought to be the, the, you know, the, the, the quality of the, uh, of the property, the sort of value of the property. Yeah, that's fascinating. It reminds me of a lot of the direct cash benefits, a lot of programs that target specifically tin versus thatch roofs with cash drops. I wonder if you could see something similar where, you know, surely the make of the house and the quality of the house is a good signal, but might not actually, you know, perfectly correlate with the wealth of a particular family or a particular household. I think that that's exactly. a great yeah, exactly. Seems. And, and you know, you, you wonder about potentially sort of incentives to underinvest in the quality of the house because they have a sure. clear incentive here. I mean, not just tax enforcement is a function of external household characteristics, but also the, the, the tax rate is also a direct function. And so, you know, that's, in, in my view, that's another dimension of the value of the chief's information. The fact that, you know, they can observe something that may be more closely associated with the actually uh, actual ability to pay of these uh, property owners. Yeah, well, if any of our listeners end up running that study, they'll have to cite us uh, for this conversation. So, <laughs> um, okay, so I know one issue here that you bring up and you discuss in the paper is that people may be concerned that because they have these local connections, there might be more corruption involved with the use of local chiefs because this is a more personalistic exchange. So what did you find on that front? That's, that's right. And that's really like in the, you know, sort of more um, theoretical literature and kind of historical literature, this risk of leakage or even more pernicious forms of abuse uh, is, is really the, the main kind of um, 
cost or a perceived cost of this or a sort of disadvantage of this model of uh, delegated tax collection. So, and, and we do find some evidence of this. We find that the chiefs are more likely to collect bribes across a range of different measures. Uh, we think that probably the, the right magnitude is uh, about uh, a 1.5 or 2 percentage point increase in bribes up from a base rate in uh, state tax collection neighborhoods of 1.5% of households. These are bribes paid in lieu of taxes. So these look very much like collusive bribes. None of this money is, made, is making it to the state. It's going into the collector's pockets. And the sort of magnitude of the bribe is about 1,000 Congolese francs, which is about a third of the uh, status quo tax rate for the great majority of, uh, of properties in, in this setting. So there is this increase in, in, in um, collusive bribes that we estimate. Um, we look at other margins where maybe the chiefs could be more, more extractive, because there's obviously very important threads of literature that suggest, you know, if the formal state asks uh, types of informal actors or local actors to, uh, to do these types of formal responsibilities, especially tax collection, that may, that may lead them to become less accountable. Uh, that, may, that may sort of create decentralized despotism in Mamdani's sort of uh, famous phrase. So we were very concerned that, uh, you know, with, with measuring this. And uh, one of the most obvious ways you might have expected that is in this kind of informal labor tax that the chiefs themselves directly administer. They have discretion over the expected contributions to this uh, labor tax in which citizens go out on weekends to uh, repair the roads and, and clean up after storms, build bridges, dig wells, counter erosion, et cetera. And you might have expected that maybe if these chiefs are becoming more extractive because of this change in their, you know, sort of who they're ultimately accountable to, you know, the principal agent problem shifts in a way, um, that they would become more extractive in this, in this uh, informal institution, which is called Salongo. And we don't really see any evidence of that. We, we um, you know, if anything, it looks almost like the opposite, that, that there could almost be substitution, but we don't find any significant uh, treatment effects here. Um, so, uh, so, so there's no real increase in kind of the extractive, extractiveness of these leaders on that margin. We also look at other margins that are at the discretion of the tax collectors. So there's, um, they control who gets exempted from the tax. Uh, they also control the actual assessment of properties into two main property bands, uh, a low value band and a high value band. And so you might've thought that on both of those, the chiefs might be kind of exploiting that discretion to extract resources. For instance, they could be uh, you know, assigning low quality households to higher tax rates than they should be assigned to. They could be exempting, um, you know, failing to exempt properties. And then basically the increase in, in compliance that we observe could just be from illegal collections. Um, but in fact, we observe the opposite for both of those. We actually see treatment effects on um, exemptions in the other, other direction. So the chiefs are more likely to exempt and they're more likely to exempt legally uh, widows and um, the elderly uh, people who, and, and disabled persons, uh, excuse me. Um, so the people who they should be exempting. And similarly, their assessments, according to a comparison with an independent enumerator's assessment um, of the properties into these low and high value bands uh, that determine the, the, the tax rate are also uh, more accurate, in fact. Um, so we don't see any evidence of kind of local mismanagement on those margins. So overall, we think that, um, you know, we think that evidence suggests that maybe these costs of leakage and the social costs of bribery may not be, you know, inordinately high in this setting. And, and one additional piece of evidence of that is, you know, you, we just look at what citizens think about chiefs at the end of this. And actually the there's a, we, we have a treatment effect on views of the chief. People view the chiefs more positively. They trust them more. They think the, um, they think they have higher integrity. Um, so we think that's sort of further evidence. And, and the chief, and you know, what, you know what else is that the citizens, if you ask them who they want to be their tax collector in the future, the, uh, the places assigned to local tax collection are more likely to say they want the chief. Um, so we think all those different facts together suggest that maybe this, uh, the sort of social cost of bribery is not, you know, super high. And we do a little back of the envelope um, uh, 
uh, kind of you know calculation that's you know the the government would basically need to weight the social cost of a dollar paid in bribes about 15 times more than it values the social benefit of a dollar in tax revenue in order to choose the uh, central collectors over the chiefs in light of this increase in bribes right and you have one other kind of positive effect here which is the distribution of benefits back to the community in these neighborhoods. So perhaps you can talk about that quickly. This is a, this is a new project. So I, I, I should, I should sort of um, emphasize that any, any results now are preliminary and subject to change. Um, but I think consistent with these more, more favorable views of the chief that we see in survey data, we also a year later or a year and a half later, uh, we study a, um, a, a different program uh, where the chiefs have discretion over the distribution of an anti-poverty program. Um, and this provides a relatively objective measure of the quality of their leadership in the neighborhood. Are they, um, the program is designed to go to the poorest people in the neighborhood. And so as is often the case with the distribution of subsidy programs or welfare benefits, these, um, these chiefs are delegated this responsibility because of their local information. They know who's needy better than the state knows. And so they allocate the, um, you know, the benefits from this program. So what this does is we can then measure, okay, are the uh, anti-poverty program benefits going to the neediest people in the neighborhood? Um, moreover, uh, are they going to the chief's relatives? Are they going to the chief himself? Uh, so we have relatively, I think, nice measures of uh, corruption and nepotism. And ultimately, we don't see any differences in corruption or nepotism. So it doesn't look that there are, the chiefs are becoming more or less um, uh, accountable if you're, if you're thinking about those types of outcomes. But on the targeting of the benefits, the, the chiefs who collected taxes compared to chiefs who did not collect taxes, um, are actually more likely to target these anti-poverty program benefits to the neediest households um, in, the, in the neighborhoods, according to survey data that we use to basically rank houses in terms of their neediness um, on, a, on a couple different uh, dimensions. Um, so if you're thinking in sort of targeting terms, they're, uh, they're making fewer errors of inclusion uh, giving, giving benefits to people they shouldn't give who are actually not in the poorest set and they also make fewer errors of exclusion, which is excluding the poorest people from receiving those benefits. Um, and that's consistent with these leaders actually becoming uh, perhaps more accountable um, or at least higher performing. Um, uh, and, and we need to dig in much more to the mechanisms behind this uh, because you could think of a couple different ones. This could be through bottom-up citizen pressure uh, this could be because the chiefs now have a sort of shock to their sense of personal responsibility and they're kind of more publicly spirited and intrinsically motivated now. It could also be a purely informational channel. They, the act of collecting taxes um, provides information about the neediness of households. And so it's not about their desire to distribute the benefits uh, correctly or to the poor. It's actually their ability to uh, distribute those, those benefits and their learning over the course of the tax campaign. So those are three different mechanisms. And um, I think it's a bit too early to say uh, where the evidence uh, falls on those, unfortunately. So maybe that'll be a plug for uh, <laughs> our future research. We don't have a working paper yet, but uh, we're hoping to uh, sometime this year. Perfect. Now oh, that's great. So I'm going to do one, one last question here, which is but uh, not necessarily out of left field because it still relates to tax, but certainly not related directly to these two projects. Um, so I, I've been following along in Freetown as they've tried to scale up some of these digital technologies to target specifically um, house, housing tax, income tax, um, and property tax uh, with, I think they use drones in one case, another one relies on satellite imagery. And so it is uh, a kind of a new way of using tech to get around some of these costs of going door to door and to target specific households. Do you, I know you're working on a project that kind of looks at the potential of technology to fill some of these gaps. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of how you see technology playing a role in this space, perhaps not now, but in the future, and what still needs to be done to make this kind of functional and viable in low capacity states. Yeah, the, the, what the 
Freetown, what's happening in Freetown is really exciting. I think the mayor there is, is uh, you know, very sort of visionary and she has this ambitious agenda and some of the partners at the IGC and the International Center for Tax and Development. And uh, I think they're doing really exciting, really, really exciting work. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, some, of the, some of the research outputs of that. Um, so we're, we're doing something a bit similar, as you said, where we're trying to think about uh, the kind of information constraints that prevent low, low capacity governments from levying more progressive taxes. And that really is a crucial constraint is just, you know, it's, you can't levy a progressive tax if you don't have good information about the, the tax base. And so in the context of property taxation, you need an up-to-date property uh, valuation role, uh, ideally one that reflects kind of market, you know, market valuation, but that does not exist in a lot of um, low capacity uh, states. So, those those uh, those options. There's a lot of different technological approaches that um, that are being developed. Sort of very simple kind of points-based systems that are just kind of a simplified instrument where um, you know government surveyors can put in a few very basic facts about the uh, the property, and that will generate the the valuation. Uh, the satellite approaches, the drone approaches are good for, for sort of measuring more accurately. Um, obviously, the property tax that is used in Kananga in the past is even a more simplified instrument. It's just literally determined by the quality of the building materials. So that's even, that's sort of the most simplified you can get in a sense. Um, what we're doing in Kananga is trying to see if uh, machine learning and computer vision might be used to help solve this problem. And so, um, you know, we've now collected a pretty rich database of information about these properties, observable information about these properties. Um, and we can use that data as well as um, a host of geographic data, sort of similarly coming from uh, satellite, uh, satellite data and just sort of spatial uh, data to, uh, to, to basically um, do a machine learning exercise on a, a training set of properties that have been valued by the official uh, government surveyors. Um, so there are a couple of individuals sitting in the cadastral um, department of the government who are responsible for um, valuing houses when, say, the bank wants to, you know, make a loan and wants to, you know, use the house as collateral, then they will, these are the, these are the people who go and do the work. Um, so we partnered with them to take a, to sort of value a random sample um, of about 1,500 properties all throughout the, the, the different neighborhoods of, um, of Kananga. And we can use that training sample with all this data to then predict property values uh, throughout the rest of the city using all that data I was mentioning previously. Uh, you can also use computer vision because we have photographs of the uh, house, the households of all of these, um, of all of these different properties. Uh, so we're 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 in the process of doing this, but we've been we've been discussing with the provincial government the possibility of of, of sort of formalizing this approach to generating an, uh, a property valuation. Uh, for all these different properties. Uh, I think we'll consider alternatives as well. I don't know that this is necessarily better than some of the approaches that are being used in Freetown. I think um, you know, the, the provincial government is and should be considering all these different options. Um, but I think it is very exciting to think about the, the possibilities that will come from using technology like this in the sense that this could enable the, uh, the government to actually levy a progressive property tax. And so it, it plans to do that. And we're hoping to be able to study this in the future. And I, I think it'll be very exciting both because, you know, there, you know, we, we know from, from work from um, you know, David Stasavage and Ken Sheevy that sort of fairness considerations matter quite a lot in increasing sort of tax compliance. And so progressivity may directly input to, um, uh, to, to sort of willingness to pay the tax through a kind of fairness mechanism, uh, kind of uh, vertical equity considerations. Um, moreover, from our own work, we, we have a, a, another paper we haven't talked about today that sort of looks at um, uh, the, the, the different tax rates that optimize revenue. And we find that um, sort of higher ability to pay types are much less elastic to reducing tax rates, meaning you can, you can have higher uh, tax rates on these sort of higher income types and they'll still pay the tax. They're not gonna drop out of the tax net. 
which which I think is is basically suggesting that not only do we we do we expect to observe a strong compliance response to a progressive tax system, we also expect to observe a strong revenue response. Um, and this could be a really meaningful policy um, on on these different dimensions of sort of establishing. Uh, fair and, you know, high capacity government in a, in a place like the DRC. Well, that's fascinating. Again, we look forward to all those projects. So any final words you want to say? Or did we cover everything about tax there is to know at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing inevitable in life except for tax and death, uh, said, <laughs> said Ben Franklin. Maybe that's a good way to go out. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on. This was great. Thank you, Morgan. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.